Chapter Four Moses in Egypt, Part Four of the Legends of the Jews, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Legends of the Jews, Volume Two, by Rabbi Louis Ginsburg. Moses Rescued by Gabriel. When Moses was in his third year, Pharaoh was dining one day, with the queen Alpharanit at his right hand, his daughter Bithia, with the infant Moses upon her lap at his left, and Balaam, the son of Beor, together with his two sons and all the princes of the realm, sitting at table in the king's presence. It happened that the infant took the crown from off the king's head and placed it on his own. When the king and the princes saw this, they were terrified, and each one in turn expressed his astonishment. The king said unto the princes, What speak you, and what say you, O ye princes, on this matter? And what is to be done to this Hebrew boy on account of this act? Balaam spoke, saying, Remember now, O my lord and king, the dream which thou didst dream many days ago and how thy servant interpreted it unto thee. Now this is a child of the Hebrews in whom is the Spirit of God. Let not my lord the king imagine in his heart that being a child he did the thing without knowledge. For he is a Hebrew boy, and wisdom and understanding are with him. Although he is yet a child, and with wisdom he has done this, and chosen unto himself the kingdom of Egypt, for this is the manner of all the Hebrews, to deceive kings and their magnates, to do all things cunningly in order to make the kings of the earth and their men to stumble. Surely thou knowest that Abraham their father acted thus. Who made the armies of Nimrod king of Babel, and of Abimelech king of Gerar to stumble? And he possessed himself of the land of the children of Heth, and the whole realm of Canaan. Their father Abraham went down into Egypt, and said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister, in order to make Egypt and its king to stumble. His son Isaac did likewise when he went to Gerar, and he dwelt there, and his strength prevailed over the army of Abimelech, and he intended to make the king of the Philistines to stumble, by saying that Rebekah his wife was his sister. Jacob also dealt treacherously with his brother, and took his birthright and his blessings from him. Then he went to Padanaram, to Laban, his mother's brother, and he obtained his daughters from him cunningly, and also his cattle and all his belongings, and he fled away and returned to the land of Canaan, to his father. His sons sold their brother Joseph, and he went down into Egypt and became a slave. And he was put into prison for twelve years, until the former Pharaoh delivered him from the prison, and magnified him above the princes of Egypt, on account of his interpreting the king's dreams. When God caused a famine to descend upon the whole world, Joseph sent for his father, and he brought him down into Egypt, his father, his brethren, and all his father's household, and he supplied them with food without pay or reward, while he acquired Egypt, and made slaves of all its inhabitants. 
Now, therefore, my lord king, behold, this child has risen up in their stead in Egypt, to do according to their deeds and make sport of every man, be he king, prince, or judge. If it please the king, let us now spill his blood upon the ground, lest he grow up and snatch the government from thine hand, and the hope of Egypt be cut off after he reigns. Let us moreover call for all the judges and the wise men of Egypt, that we may know whether the judgment of death be due to this child, as I have said, and then we will slay him. Pharaoh sent and called for all the wise men of Egypt, and they came, and the angel Gabriel was disguised as one of them. When they were asked their opinion in the matter, Gabriel spoke up and said, If it please the king, let him place an onyx stone before the child, and a coal of fire, and if he stretches out his hand and grasps the onyx stone, then shall we know that the child hath done with wisdom all that he hath done, and we will slay him. But if he stretches out his hand and grasps the coal of fire, then shall we know that it was not with consciousness that he did the thing, and he shall live. The council seemed good in the eyes of the king, and when they had placed the stone and the coal before the child, Moses stretched forth his hand towards the onyx stone and attempted to seize it. But the angel Gabriel guided his hand away from it and placed it upon the live coal, and the coal burnt the child's hand, and he lifted it up and touched it to his mouth and burnt part of his lips and part of his tongue. And for all his life he became slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Seeing this, the king and the princes knew that Moses had not acted with knowledge in taking the crown from off the king's head, and they refrained from slaying him. God himself, who protected Moses, turned the king's mind to grace, and his foster-mother snatched him away, and she had him educated with great care so that the Hebrews depended upon him, and cherished the hope that great things would be done by him. But the Egyptians were suspicious of what would follow from such an education as his. At great cost, teachers were invited to come to Egypt from neighboring lands to educate the child Moses. Some came of their own accord to instruct him in the sciences and the liberal arts. By reason of his admirable endowments of mind, he soon excelled his teachers in knowledge. His learning seemed a process of mere recollecting, and when there was a difference of opinion among scholars, he selected the correct one instinctively, for his mind refused to store up anything that was false. But he deserves more praise for his unusual strength of will than for his natural capacity for he succeeded in transforming an originally evil disposition into a noble, exalted character, a change that was farther aided by his resolution, as he himself acknowledged later. After the wonderful exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, a king of Arabia sent an artist to Moses to paint his portrait, that he might always have the likeness of the divine man before him. The painter returned with his handiwork, and the king assembled his wise men, those in particular who were conversant with the science of physiognomy, 
he displayed the portrait before them and invited their judgment upon it. The unanimous opinion was that it represented a man covetous, haughty, sensual, in short, disfigured by all possible ugly traits. The king was indignant that they should pretend to be masters in physiognomy, seeing that they declared the picture of Moses, the holy, divine man, to be the picture of a villain. They defended themselves by accusing the painter in turn of not having produced a true portrait of Moses, else they would not have fallen into the erroneous judgment they had expressed. But the artist insisted that his work resembled the original closely. Unable to decide who was right, the Arabian king went to see Moses, and he could not but admit that the portrait painted for him was a masterpiece. Moses, as he beheld him in the flesh, was the Moses upon the canvas. There could be no doubt but that the highly extolled knowledge of his physiognomy experts was empty twaddle. He told Moses what had happened, and what he thought of it. He replied, Thy artist and thy experts alike are masters, each in his line. If my fine qualities were a product of nature, I were no better than a log of wood, which remains forever as nature produced it at the first. Unashamed I make the confession to thee, that by nature I possessed all the reprehensible traits thy wise men read in my picture and ascribed to me, perhaps to a greater degree even than they think. But I mastered my evil impulses with my strong will, and the character I acquired through severe discipline has become the opposite of the disposition with which I was born. Through this change, wrought in me by my own efforts, I have earned honor and commendation upon earth, as well as in heaven. The Legends of the Jews, Volume 2, by Rabbi Louis Ginsburg The Youth of Moses One day, it was after he was grown up and had passed beyond the years of childhood, Moses went to the land of Goshen, in which lived the children of Israel. There he saw the burdens under which his people were groaning, and he inquired why the heavy service had been put upon them. The Israelites told him all that had befallen, told him of the cruel edict Pharaoh had issued shortly before his birth, and told him of the wicked counsels given by Balaam against themselves as well as his person when he was but a little boy and had set Pharaoh's crown upon his head. The wrath of Moses was kindled against the spiteful adviser, and he tried to think out means of rendering him harmless. But Balaam, getting wind of his ill-feeling, fled from Egypt with his two sons, and betook himself to the courts of Kikanos, king of Ethiopia. The sight of his enslaved people touched Moses unto tears, and he spoke, saying, Woe unto me for your anguish! Rather would I die than see you suffer so grievously. He did not disdain to help his unfortunate brethren at their heavy tasks, as much as lay in his power. He dismissed all thought of his high station at court, shouldered a share of the burdens put upon the Israelites, and toiled in their place. 
the result was that he not only gave relief to the heavily laden workmen, but he also gained the favor of Pharaoh, who believed that Moses was taking part in the labor in order to promote the execution of the royal order. And God said unto Moses, Thou didst relinquish all thy other occupations, and didst join thyself unto the children of Israel, whom thou dost treat as brethren. Therefore will I too put aside now all heavenly and earthly affairs, and hold converse with thee. Moses continued to do all he could to alleviate the suffering of his brethren to the best of his ability. He addressed encouraging words to them, saying, My dear brethren, bear your lot with fortitude, do not lose courage, and let not your spirit grow weary with the weariness of your body. Better times will come, when tribulation shall be changed into joy. Clouds are followed by sunshine, storms by calm. All things in the world tend towards their opposites, and nothing is more inconstant than the fortunes of man. The royal favor, which the king accorded him in ever-increasing measure, he made use of to lighten the burden laid upon the children of Israel. One day he came into the presence of Pharaoh and said, O oh, my Lord, I have a request to make of thee, and my hope is that thou wilt not deny it. Speak, replied the king. It is an admitted fact, said Moses that if a slave is not afforded rest at least one day in the week, he will die of overexertion. Thy Hebrew slaves will surely perish, unless thou accordest them a day of cessation from work. Pharaoh fulfilled the petition preferred by Moses, and the king's edict was published in the whole of Egypt and in Goshen as follows. To the sons of Israel, thus saith the king, do your work and perform your service for six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest, and on it ye shall do no labor. Thus shall ye do unto all times, according to the command of the king and the command of Moses, the son of Bithia. And the day appointed by Moses as the day of rest was Saturday, later given by God to the Israelites as the Sabbath day. While Moses abode in Goshen, an incident of great importance occurred. To superintend the service of the children of Israel, an officer from among them was set over every ten, and ten such officers were under the surveillance of an Egyptian taskmaster. One of these Hebrew officers, Dathan by name, had a wife, Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan, who was of extraordinary beauty but inclined to be very loquacious. Whenever the Egyptian taskmaster set over her husband came to their house on business connected with his office, she would approach him pleasantly and enter into conversation with him. The beautiful Israelitish woman enkindled a mad passion in his breast, and he sought and found a cunning way of satisfying his lustful desire. One day he appeared at break of dawn at the house of Dathan, roused him from his sleep, and ordered him to hurry his detachment of men to their work. The husband scarcely out of sight, he executed the villainy he had planned, and dishonored the woman. 
and the fruit of this illicit relation was the blasphemer of the name whom Moses ordered to execution on the march through the desert. At the moment when the Egyptians slipped out of Shelomith's chamber, Dathan returned home. Vexed that his crime had come to the knowledge of the injured husband, the taskmaster goaded him on to work with excessive vigor, and dealt him blow after blow with the intention to kill him. Young Moses happened to visit the place at which the much-abused and tortured Hebrew was at work. Dathan hastened toward him, and complained of all the wrong and suffering the Egyptian had inflicted upon him. Full of wrath, Moses, whom the Holy Spirit had acquainted with the injury done the Hebrew officer by the Egyptian taskmaster, cried out to the latter, saying, Not enough that thou hast dishonored this man's wife? Thou aimest to kill him too? And turning to God, he spoke further. What will become of thy promise to Abraham, that his posterity shall be as numerous as the stars, if his children are given over to death? And what will become of the revelation on Sinai, if the children of Israel are exterminated? Moses wanted to see if someone would step forward and impelled by zeal for the cause of God and for God's law, would declare himself ready to avenge the outrage. He waited in vain. Then he determined to act himself. Naturally enough, he hesitated to take the life of a human being. He did not know whether the evildoer might not be brought to repentance, and then lead a life of pious endeavor. He also considered that there would perhaps be some among the descendants to spring from the Egyptian, for whose sake their wicked ancestor might rightfully lay claim to clemency. The Holy Spirit allayed all his doubts. He was made to see that not the slightest hope existed that good would come either from the malefactor himself or from any of his offspring. Then Moses was willing to requite him for his evil deeds. Nevertheless, he first consulted the angels to hear what they had to say, and they agreed that the Egyptian deserved death, and Moses acted according to their opinion. Neither physical strength nor a weapon was needed to carry out his purpose. He merely pronounced the name of God, and the Egyptian was a corpse. To the bystanders, the Israelites, Moses said, the Lord compared you to the sand of the seashore, and as the sand moves noiselessly from place to place, so I pray you to keep the knowledge of what hath happened a secret within yourselves. Let nothing be heard concerning it. The wish expressed by Moses was not honored. The slaying of the Egyptian remained no secret, and those who betrayed it were Israelites. Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Palu, of the tribe of Reuben, notorious for their effrontery and contentiousness. The day after the thing with the Egyptian happened, the two brothers began of malice aforethought to scuffle with each other, only in order to draw Moses into the quarrel and create an occasion for his betrayal. The plan succeeded admirably. Seeing Dathan raise his hands against Abiram to deal him a blow, Moses exclaimed, 
O oh, thou art a villain, to lift up thy hand against an Israelite, even if he is no better than thou. Dathan replied, Young man, who hath made thee to be a judge over us? Thou that hast not yet attained to years of maturity, we know very well that thou art the son of Jochebed, though people call thee the son of Princess Bithia, and if thou should attempt to play the part of our master and judge, we will publish abroad the thing thou didst unto the Egyptian, or peradventure thou harborest the intention to slay us as thou didst slay him, by pronouncing the name of God? Not satisfied with these taunts, the noble pair of brothers betook themselves to Pharaoh, and spoke before him. Moses dishonoreth thy royal mantle and thy crown, to which Pharaoh returned, saying, Much good may it do him, but they pursued the subject. He helped thine enemies, Pharaoh, they continued, whereupon he replied, as before, Much good may it do him. Still they went on, He is not the son of thy daughter. These last words did not fail of making an impression upon Pharaoh. A royal command was issued for the arrest of Moses, and he was condemned to death by the sword. The angels came to God and said, Moses, the familiar of thine house, is held under restraint. And God replied, I will espouse his cause. But, the angels urged, his verdict of death has been pronounced. Yes, they are leading him to execution. And again God made reply as before, I will espouse his cause. Moses mounted the scaffold, and a sword, sharp beyond compare, was set upon his neck ten times, but it always slipped away, because his neck was as hard as ivory. And a still greater miracle came to pass. God sent down the angel Michael, in the guise of a hangman, and the human hangman charged by Pharaoh with the execution was changed into the form of Moses. This spurious Moses the angel killed with the very sword with which the executioner had proposed to slay the intended victim. Meantime, Moses took to flight. Pharaoh ordered his pursuit, but it was in vain. The king's troops were partly stricken with blindness, partly with dumbness. The dumb could give no information about the abiding place of Moses, and the blind, though they knew where it was, could not get to it. End of chapter 4, part 4